This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am so fired up for today because we've got Associate Professor Tom Davidoff from Sauter School of Business, UBC. Right. And we've also got Andre Pavlov. He is a professor of finance at Beatty School of Business at SFU. That's right. And it's a tete-a-tete today. It's uh, it's the great debate. They call it a tete-a-tete. Jeez, great debate. I'm, I'm having a tough time over here. Great debate, UBC versus SFU. And I don't know if they'd say it was UBC versus SFU, but we we will definitely say it's it's (laughs) UBC versus SFU. This is a great conversation. Tom Davidoff, past guest fan favorite. Andre Pavlov, past guest fan favorite. Right. We're bringing two past guest fan favorites together. We did this once before over at Tom's place pre-COVID, uh, which was a, a great conversation, the great debate. Yeah, um, a great we're, spread, too. We're, we're back. We're back. And this time, I feel like I feel like last time there was a specific policy. I haven't listened to it in a while that we were really mm-hmm. talking about. Today, we start with taxation. There was this kernel that we decided to get everybody together to talk about. But it that's not what we're talking about today. This is really where are we at as a city and as a province and as a country, what are we getting right? What are we getting right with housing? What are we getting wrong? Where's the economy headed? Forecasting the real estate market. This is all things BC. And spoiler alert, these guys don't agree on much. It's it's so complicated when you start talking about the details, about understanding the housing crisis in BC, also talking about affordability, how there should be government intervention, if at all, in any market. And it gets more complicated as this conversation goes on. And you're right. These guys, they they like to think that they agree on stuff. But there was some, uh, I, I caught some eye rolling in the studio. Is that right? Yeah. I, uh, I, I can't even recall. I I feel like we no, spoke. It was, my, it was me. Oh. <laughs> it was me every time you talked. Uh, <laughs> I was no. going to say, because I feel like I did actually speak. Last time we just literally hit record and they just went at it yeah, for no. about an hour and a half. This time we actually uh, were a little bit more involved in the, the conversation, the crazy, but not much. We didn't want to insert ourselves too much. Yeah. And I, I like to think that we're pretty savvy on the market, but when these guys get going, I feel like I get out of the way. We don't, we don't know where the, I, I don't have a footnote. Get, get, get out I of don't the have way. a footnote. <laughs> get out of the way. Uh, okay. Before we get to that, what else do we got? <laughs> what else do we have? Well, Adam, we've been spending a lot of time on these new shirts. Yes. Now it sounds like everybody's been asking. We changed the color. It's, it's going to be maroon. It's going to be maroon. That's that's the big reveal today. Yeah, it's that was that of, was all it, weekend. That it's was all kind weekend. of uh, an old. Uh, wasn't the Canucks the old Canucks jersey maroon? Is that kind of oh, like the really old, the Canucks, really old, like Canucks the V? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's almost that maroon. It's almost um, like a throwback. I, I yeah, like it, it was yeah. strategic in that regard, right? Uh, and and uh, so we've got some really nice maroon shirts. It's still the same amazing quality. We've given out so many shirts in the V-Rep community. 
You know where you go if you want a shirt from the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, Matt? Where do you go? You go to Instagram. And, uh, and we've been putting in a lot of work on Instagram. Well, yeah, no kidding. And it's going to just continue to snowball uh, because we're putting out a lot of content. Well, and here, Kim, I just want to say one of the types of content we're doing here. Sure. We're going through our our back catalog yeah. in, in a lot of ways and thinking, what's stuck out? What was the what was a great interesting point of that conversation, and we're we're what do you call them? Creating threads around creating them. threads around past episodes so, and and the most recent episodes. So if you don't get a chance to listen to the whole thing, you have hey here's an interesting takeaway from this week's guest. Well, for really example, stuff. For example, we did uh, one of the things that came up on our on our recent show with Brendan Ogmanson. Right, was the generational wealth transfer. That's right. That so was we did a post that summarized what the generational wealth transfer is, right down to the dollar details. Right, and then we also did a separate post, which was a video clip, a reel, with Brendan Ogmanson talking about the generational wealth transfer. So this is the kind of uh, if you can't always tune into the show but you want to get some of the best points, you want to be following us at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast on Twitter. And you know what? I'll oh, just say all Twitter. We don't even go. What's Twitter? Instagram. Instagram. But here's <laughs> the thing. They look like Twitter posts. And uh, I just want to say, here's another example. Uh, and you just put this one out. Colin Boza, yes. CEO of Boza Properties. Past guest. He outlined five things to think about if you're investing in real estate. Here's his top five tips. Yeah. Now, if you haven't listened to the show for a while or you listened to Colin back in 2019, when was that? 20, was I think 2020. I think it was 2020 because we're, yeah, we were talking COVID. Oh, was it COVID? Yeah, oh, yeah okay. we were I talking thought it was COVID. even before that. Anyway, we're, we're just bringing back the, the best of. It's, well, uh, so, but this is the best thing for me because I never listen back. I don't think you listen no, back either. I, I can't, I can't stand mm -hmm. uh, watching myself yeah. or listening to myself. So I don't, I don't listen back, but what this is forcing me to do is to revisit a lot of the concepts over the past almost seven years of doing this. And man, there are some amazing takeaways. Like there really are. And, and this is the best, to, this is the best format to get it in. So it's at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. That's how you get there, Matt. I know you haven't been on, but uh, let's, uh, let's get you on. Well, yeah. Okay. And let's uh, cut to this. This is, this is in-depth, long form, Tom Davidoff. Professor Tom Davidoff and Professor Andre Pavlov. This is this is like you went to uh, what, what's the uh, what's that? I don't even think what? the university's producing content like this. No, honestly, no, I, I don't. I think they're on horns. I, you know what? What's that? Uh, what's the Masters uh, pub at at UBC? I can't remember. I used to go there and talk. Uh, flex, I used to go to flex there. I, I used the to Masters go to, Pub. Yeah, no, it's actually called it's it's, oh, it's, okay. uh, it's I, called the Masters. They wouldn't even pub. let me on campus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to go there and talk Foucault. All right. Not real. <laughs> How you like them apples? I used to be uh, in the window. <laughs> Andre Pavlov, Tom Davidoff. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Berquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. 
Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Tom Davidoff, Associate Professor at the Sauter School of Business at UBC, and Andre Pavlov. He is a Professor of Finance at the Beattie School of Business at Simon Fraser University. I should say you two, today you're, you're adversaries, but you typically collaborate on, uh, <laughs> on, on you've, you have in the past on academic articles. And Matt, uh, I'll let you do the honors. Past guest fan favorite, I think, for both. And we've also had a debate uh, back in, it was pre-COVID. I can't recall exactly when, but we've but it was at Tom's around uh, Tom's kitchen table, yep, I think, last right. time. So thanks for coming down to the studio. Maybe for listeners who, who don't know or haven't heard either of you on the show, can we maybe start just by, Tom, uh, you telling uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm an economist. I teach at the Sauter School of uh, Business at UBC. I teach... Uh, undergrad and MBA and the occasional uh, PhD course on economics and uh, real estate finance. And Audrey? Yeah, pretty much the same. <laughs> I'm at the SFU, uh, finance prof, and I uh, mostly uh, teach real estate and, and credit risk um, for finance students. So a uh, pretty similar background overall. So, you know, I was, we were trying to think of a good way to kick this off. We basically, we've organized the event because there was some news late last year about differing perspectives on taxation, I think, property taxation in, in Vancouver. Maybe I'll start with you, Andre. Does Vancouver have a taxation problem? Uh, yes, but not not uh, real estate trans, uh, tra- taxation. Yeah, our income taxes and sales tax and gas tax and airport fee tax and all of those are very high. Yes, we do have that problem. Uh, and including, actually, I, I said not property tax, but actually including uh, property taxes, in my view, as we discussed last time we were together, uh, in my view, um, Vancouver property taxes are very high. So Vancouver single-family home owners pay the highest property tax in Canada. And I understand, we're going to get into it, I'm sure, but I understand rates are low, tax rates are low, but you multiply the rate by a very high typical house price, and you get a very high dollar amount. So Vancouver single-family homeowners pay the highest. Vancouver apartment owners are not quite so bad. They're about average for Canada because obviously apartments are a little bit cheaper. Um, but still, overall, uh, very, very high uh, tax rates in dollar terms. And now that's hard to swallow because I don't feel um, so far that our city services have been all that great. So you don't feel like we get what we pay for? No, I don't. Uh, just uh, just try to do a permit on a siding and you'll know. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, maybe the same question, because I know that there was some research done that you shared at the very least with some grad students at UBC, where my sense is you feel differently about property taxes. 
I do. And uh, I, I would agree with Andre, though. And we have high taxes on a lot of activities, and we certainly have a regulatory system that is not functioning as well as it could. Uh, rules are very strict, and it takes a long time to get stuff processed. I would say, though, let's just take a step back and think about the property tax for public benefits trade-off. Vancouver is a fantastic city, and services in many ways are great. You know, there are definitely crime problems, but overall, we live in a place where you can go out at night and feel good about it. Uh, you can park your bike downstairs and, you know, have a reasonable expectation it'll be there when we get out. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so what's it worth a year? Right. I mean, you, let, let's throw in schools. Right. I mean, you know, send a kid to school, walk the streets safely, get the streets cleared sometimes in the event of snow, trash collection regularly. You know, that's worth a lot of money. I mean, you'd pay a lot in condo fees for that. So what does a homeowner pay for that? Well, if you're a single family homeowner, suppose you're uh, at a benchmark around two million bucks. What are you paying? Six grand, a little more than that a year for all of that. That that doesn't strike me as a lot of money. What does strike me as a lot of money is how much you have to pay in just income tax. Forget sales tax, but let's just do income tax if you had to buy that place qualifying with 20% down. So, you know, roughly, what do you multiply your income by four, at least under lower interest rates, to qualify under the stress test? So $2 million house, you need a half million bucks in income. You're well over 100K in taxes. And, uh, you know, 100K in income tax. So, you know, and that's the penalty for working for a living versus 6K uh, to buy the house. Now, what does Canada want you to do more of? Do we want more people working and selling stuff or do we want more people buying property? There's no more property to buy. So to me, load up on the property taxes, go easy on the income taxes. But we're so unbelievably out of whack on that relationship. So it sounds like we're incentivizing the wrong things. Yeah. And, you know, I think we'll get to it later, but I'll just mention now the study uh, I did with those uh, two students, uh, Craig James and uh, Paula Cabre. And, uh, you know, half the people who own uh, super expensive properties around greater Vancouver pay basically nothing in income tax. So the median owner, so take the top 5% of properties, the fanciest properties around greater Vancouver, line up the owners from the lowest income tax payer to the top. The guy in the middle is paying about 16000 bucks a year in income tax compared to, you know, at that purchase price, you're talking 400 k in income tax if you qualified. So something's wrong. Andre, I know you looked at more recent, as I understand it, 2018-2019 census data, and you had a fairly specific response to that research that was done. Yeah, might as well get that out of the way, even though <laughs> I'm hoping the topic we discussed today is a little more than, than this. Yeah, uh, sure. Because I think uh, just based on what we started with, we're going to discover, I know this was structured as a debate, but we're really going to discover that we're much closer to and I in pretty much on a lot of things than it appears if we just look at, at tweets and, and, and brief <laughs> statements. So, so that's why I'm so uh, happy we're together uh, in person, because I'm, I'm hoping we come up with some ideas because sure, we disagree here and there, but if we agree on something, that is probably a good idea. So let's try to identify those. But let's talk about the study briefly, uh, just to kind of get it out of the way. So obviously, uh, I'm assuming that this math in the study was done right. That's not the issue. The issue is that it looks at one year of income tax. And, uh, and that's pretty simple. Uh, buying a house is the outcome of lifetime earnings and savings, possibly multiple lives, 
right? It's uh, it's possibly two partners coming together. It's who knows, right? But it's lifetime earnings or longer. But the, but the earnings are uh, the study looks at is just one year. So this is like figuring out how much we've walked since we started talking right now to determine how much we've walked over the whole morning, right? Well, if you look at how far we've walked just now in the last minute or two, that's not going to get you very far, right? We've been sitting around here, but, uh, but I walked half, half the city to get here, right? Uh, so it's well, a third. Okay, not half, a third. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. I, I, I happen to park pretty far. doesn't matter. <laughs> the point is we both, well, Tom Pike, I understand, yeah, right? Correct. So there you go. Bo, um, Tom has traveled pretty far today already. And but measuring the last minute or two is not representative of how far he's traveled today. Same thing with income. You can't look at one year of income to determine lifetime of uh, earnings and savings. And then the other issue is this income is just basically salary and capital gains, things that are directly taxable. It doesn't include again lifetime earnings related to previous real estate investments or other investments capital gains that uh, happened the previous year, but not this year, or that haven't been realized, but you can borrow against them, right? So there's uh, there's a whole bunch of income and uh, that is not accounted in that one single tax payment. So it really, at the end of the day, it really means nothing. One year of income, uh, you would expect actually people who buy a $3.7 million home to work less, right? They've made it, right? They've somehow saved and worked in the past somewhere else maybe and they've made it and and why would they have a salary that that pays income tax now so so they're retired or or in or reduced hours or something so the, the study totally makes sense but it doesn't mean homeowners don't pay income taxes all it means is that the income taxes have been paid at another time and another place so, Tom, I don't know if you want to comment on that, but I, this this opens the path, I think, to a place where we can agree on. Well, I, yeah, I, there's a lot there that I do agree with. Uh, it's certainly true, you know, uh, wealth is a stock and income is a flow and they don't necessarily match. Now, I will say, it distorted, well, you know, sometimes you, you take a year off or, you know, you sold the business, whatever. But that would show up in maybe five, you know, seven, 10 percent of cases. It shouldn't be showing up in 50 percent of cases. Maybe 2018 was some crazy anomaly year where everybody with money was just taking some time off in 2018, anticipating COVID, kind of, you know, getting their act. I mean, I'm, I'm making a bit of a, a joke there. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that that's what happened. And, you know, yeah, the money does probably come from elsewhere, right? It could be a lifetime of work. It could be retirees who made their money in Toronto. It could be trust fund hippies whose parents made a lot of money. It could be, and I think there's reason to believe it is, uh, you know, children or uh, the people themselves who've earned money overseas. But, you know, then the question is, is that what we want in Vancouver? Is that what we want to reward? Do we want to be the place, hey, you cross the finish line, welcome to your palatial home, here's the low property tax you deserve? I don't think so. I think probably right now the uh, public uh, policy crisis we have is people who are trying to work for a living around greater Vancouver. And I think we want to design a tax policy uh, and a government system that is friendly to work for a living and find a place to live. And again, I do think Andre and I probably agree on a, a, a you know fairly wide range of policies that would uh, make that possible. 
particularly on the supply side, is my guess. So, and just thinking about this, because I know over the years we've talked a lot about Vancouver being an anomaly in terms of, I guess, either how high the taxes are or how low the taxes are when it comes to property, right? Um, I know that back in 2016, when we first had you on the show, Tom, the idea was that it's a, it's a pretty cheap, cheap place to store money. Are we still like in North America, let's say, are there other areas that you can point to where the income tax and the property tax are kind of skewed the way that you're suggesting? I mean, most of the U.S., right? So, uh, you know, New Hampshire would be a classic place north of Boston with almost no income tax. They have a lot of high earners exit Boston to go live there, and but high property taxes. Greater New York, you know, where Wall Street's located, you know, income taxes are not low, uh, but they're lower than they are here. And property taxes, you really pay. Now, the U.S. system's different in a way that's a little controversial, which is each municipality uh, pays for schools with its own property tax. And depending on how you look at things, that's great because you can pick the jurisdiction that matches your tastes. You want to have almost private school quality, great education. Uh, well, you can have, you know, your property taxes pay for that in a Greenwich, Connecticut, or, you know, most of Westchester, New York, parts of Jersey. Or if you can't afford good schools, you can find a low property tax, low property value. Tax. The other way to look at it, though, is if you're the child of rich parents, you're going to go to this elite jurisdiction and have amazing public schools. And if you're the child of poor parents, you're going to be stuck in a low income trap where the schools are lousy and the peers don't have the same parental investment that, that raises all boats. So it's a different system. But yeah, there's lots of places in the U.S. where you pay very high property tax, you know, something like 2% despite high property values. And it's just a different system. I kind of want to unpack the the idea that if you live in a more expensive property, you should you should either pay more income tax or pay more property tax, which is I think what you're what you're getting at. So does it does it really matter? Uh, and 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 I know I I I know why why you think it matters, but what are some of the complications with people not paying a lot of income tax living in some of the most expensive real estate in Canada? Well, it's money. It's two billion bucks a year. So is what we came up with. So what we had suggested is, you know, you'd be paying a lot of your income if you're a significant earner, you know, on the margin, you're paying 50% plus in British Columbia. So, you know, you're going to get to a quarter of your income in income tax roughly if you can really off of income afford a high end home around Vancouver. But, but that's a crazy ask. No one's going to require that everybody do that. First of all, there's a lot of retirees, and you probably have to just totally exempt retirees from any test like that. A lot of them bought a long time ago. And moreover, if you're retired, you played your rule, you played your, your financial game under one set of rules to have it shifted on you when you can't adapt by changing how many hours you work or whatever. That's, that's just not going to fly politically. But what we said is, okay, in working age, what if Everybody has to pay 1% of their property value in income tax. If you already do, and most people pay a lot more than that, no, no change. But if you're 25 years old and your dad just bought you a $3 million house, that's 30K a year you got to pay in income tax or some kind of tax. Or we'd call it you know, sort of an alternative minimum tax based on property value. And, you know, yeah, so what, what happens to the 25-year-old who doesn't work for a living, who has to pay 30 k a year? Well, they, they might sell the house and the house gets redeveloped or bought by somebody who works for a living. I think that that's probably a healthy thing. And just in terms of numbers, you know, it's not about, you know, necessarily the fairness of who gets to live where. It's, it's $2 billion is how much you'd get just from the top 10% of properties if you put that in. 
And, you know, $2 billion, is, that's a lot of help for the homeless, building rental housing, providing that renter's subsidy that the pro- province has been promising for a long time. Do you agree, Andre? Well, it, a lot was said here. So so let's, let's unpack <laughs> this uh, one at a time. So uh, as I said, I always try to find a place where we do agree. And, and clearly, Tom and I agree that our income taxes are unbelievably high. And, uh, and regulation is stringent. We can talk about that in a minute as well. So let's tackle that big problem first. Let's drop income taxes and let's drop um, regulation before we do uh, anything else. And uh, not only we haven't done that, uh, we've gone the opposite way. And it's interesting because Tom and I have, uh, have been friends for a long time and we had exactly the same discussion when we were developing the speculation and vacancy tax proposal. And the speculation and vacancy tax proposal was had exactly the same thinking. It needs to be revenue neutral. And anyone who pays any tax anywhere in Canada can use that tax to offset their speculation and vacancy tax payment. So dollar for dollar. So yeah, if you're making any money in Canada and you're paying tax, that tax offsets your speculation and vacancy tax payment. So the point was, you come from somewhere else, you haven't contributed to the Canadian society in any way, but now you benefit, or well, it's fair to ask you to pay a little bit, right? Nothing wrong with that, we thought at the time. So that was the proposal. Of course, what we got is completely different. What we got is a, a, a tax that is primarily paid by local British Columbians who are earning and paying taxes in British Columbia. So that income tax offset never happened. Income taxes did not go down as a result. The speculation vacancy tax was not revenue neutral. So it just became another slush fund. So then our politicians can pull uh, $500 million out of thin air to buy old apartment buildings for uh, rather than increase supply. So I'm sure that will come up at some point too. But um, this is wrong, right? So we created, we created a monster that collects more taxes from people to my view, not just not to not benefit to, to anyone, but actually to the detriment of everyone, including rentals, inclu- including renters. So, so that's my concern. Let's agree income taxes and, and regulation are, are way too high. Let's lower that first because we are long overdue. Uh, and that pattern is not just speculation and vacancy tax. The, the carbon tax was also advertised as revenue neutral. It was supposed to be revenue neutral. If you had low carbon emissions like Tom does because he bikes, right? <laughs> and by the way, I bike too, not today, but I, I bike to school every day. Um, uh, so Tom and I should be better off under the carbon tax regime. And we're not. We're not because... The moment you get some threshold of income, you get no carbon tax rebate, but you still pay the tax for just heating your home. So uh, our government, both federal and provincial, have a history of introducing measures that may have some economic foundation only as long as they're revenue neutral, but they are never revenue neutral. They are always just another way to tax people more. So what I'm concerned is, that we're going to go down that path, we're going to increase property taxes, but we're not going to decrease um, income taxes or, or regulation in any meaningful way. I, I, just, I just want to say one thing here, which isn't really an argument with Andre at all. Uh, it's, it, 
I just want to point one other channel where you cannot pay a lot of income tax, actually, which is a lot of the high net worth people uh, around British Columbia. They do work. They work hard, but they have small businesses and, uh, you know, corporate tax, which is probably fairly low, but wouldn't count on what we've measured. I don't think that's what's going on in the data. I think it's people who've made money in the past or who inherited money. Uh, but but that that is another channel that, that and, and, you know, and, but but income taxes affect that choice. Right. You know, every time you go to the dentist, you're visiting a corporation, not a dentist. And, you know, that's not particularly efficient, but that's what the tax code generates. And I'm sure we could point to cases where somebody really ought to be an engineer working for a corporation, but he's doing some kind of business setup because that's uh, that's what our tax system says. So actually, from personal experience that uh, there was advantage to that. It's gone now. Yeah. And that's a whole other topic, in my view, removing that advantage is partly responsible why we have no doctors and dentists and engineers and architects uh, these days. So, but that's Great point about doctors, by the way. I am, you know, that the doctor crisis really does seem to coincide with the uh, removal of that incentive. Yeah, yeah. So, so we removed the incentive, which was a negotiated benefit. Doctors basically said, instead of getting higher fees, we're going to be able to run our business through a corporation. Yeah, sure, that increases our paperwork a little bit, but it does reduce our taxes most of the time. And uh, and then Justin Trudeau came into power, and the first thing he did was remove that benefit because of fairness, but did not bring the doctor fees back to where they would have been otherwise. And now we have no doctors. Well, this is not a surprise. Sorry, this is not... I didn't realize medical doctors cannot incorporate no, anymore? they can, but in the past, you could um, distribute your income to various oh, family I members. Right. I or, remember so when this basically, came there in, were yeah. some advantages, yeah. right? Well, that was negotiated benefit. That was instead of bringing your fees to what they really should be, based on how many years you've been in medical school and how much income you've foregone to do that, uh, we're going to give you this tax benefit. Same, same, you know, governments love that because... On the books, it's appeared they're not spending quite as much money while in there, at least they're spending the same money. But that was the negotiated benefit. And then certainly that was taken away, but only one side of it. And uh, so, so we have a history. The point here is I'm not an accountant, so I'm a little bit out of my depth on all of this. I apologize if I'm wrong on any of this. But the point remains that we have a history of inventing these taxes and, and fees that are based on some economic foundation, but then we end up actually adding them to the existing taxes and, and never actually reduce tax income taxes or regulation. So let's start there because we're long overdue before we have any conversation about raising property taxes. And then I want to come back to what um, uh, Tom said on our property taxes. So yeah, sure. Great place. Obviously, Tom and I and, and you guys, everyone chooses, to, a lot of people choose to live here. I get it. It's a nice place. How much of that is due to city services? Because the first time my bike got stolen from my garage, I got a, <laughs> from, I got a phone call from uh, a police officer. Not a visit, Yeah, right? a phone call. And the second time my bike got stolen from my garage was um, I had to fill an online form. I didn't even get a phone call. So as far as I'm concerned, the city has spent zero dollars on me to protect my bike. Now, obviously, we have insurance, so it's not like I'm complaining. That's not a big financial dent. But over time, it adds up, right? And certainly the inconvenience and annoyance are, are huge. And it's wrong, regardless of whether or big or small, that is a wrong thing to do. So I think our city services are 
nowhere near what they should be. And uh, so last year, my garbage collection around Christmas was my garbage didn't get picked up for a month, right? Now, this year was a lot better, thankfully. We have a new administration, so I'm very hopeful. And things do seem to be turning around uh, very quickly. So maybe we'll get now the value that, that we've been paying for. But certainly as of last year, that, that, that was not at all the case. And finally, how is it that other cities in Canada can make ends meet and provide the same services or better with lower dollar taxes? Because the fact that the home is more expensive doesn't make city services more expensive. It costs the same amount of money to collect your garbage, whether your home is 100,000 or 100 million. It is the same amount. So the fact that our property taxes are linked to property values already makes them progressive in a way that people with high property values are subsidizing everyone else because they're paying more for the city services they consume. I feel like, Tom, you probably have responses to that. Uh, and I, I, as I understand, we have basically the first comment was about the BC spec and yeah. vacancy tax, which I think uh, you've been on the show talking about before. Uh, I guess a response there. Yeah, I mean, Andre brought up a couple of legitimate issues, I think both of which are debatable, but you know, it's not a home run either direction. So the first is, suppose you live in Toronto, you make a load of money uh, as a lawyer, and you have a vacation place in Vancouver, right? So the question is, should you get to uh, say, well, do you get to write off your Ontario income tax for your BC property, or should the write-off only be for a primary residence? My view, primary residence, I don't, you know, I don't think, you know, second homes are a thing we need to, you know, worry about the affordability of. We don't have a second homelessness problem so much as a first homelessness <laughs> problem. But, but, but the point is not a, a crazy one, that if you pay income tax anywhere in Canada, that that ought to count as an exclusion. That's a, a political question. Another political question is when you move towards efficiency, you know, by saying, look, we're going to shift the property, the, the over the more dollars are going to be raised from property relative to income. Now you can get there by cutting income taxes, you can get there by raising property taxes, or you can get there by doing both. Now, the re I think anytime you make a proposal about a policy change, I think the right way to do it is to propose balanced budget, because then you're not saying smaller government, you're not saying bigger government, you're saying, we think there should be a shift in the way we raise revenue. Now, uh, as for, you know, big picture, is it bad if what happens is overall taxes go up every time you fix a tax problem, like encourage uh, people to ride bikes with a carbon tax or walk longer from their parking space, uh, or <laughs> um, <laughs> or you say, you know, uh, we ought to be taxing inelastically supplied housing instead of elastically supplied labor and sales. You know, should you spend more money or, or not when you find those efficiencies? You know, th that's a political question, right? I mean, there are some people who would say, look, you know, the most important thing is government not steal from people. And that's a legitimate perspective, you know, that a lot of people think what government's in the business of doing is raising revenue and having their political allies get the benefits. Another view is, you know, we're a rich city and we have lousy public schools. What, what's up with that? How, how? I mean, they're not lousy. I don't want to say our public schools are lousy, but they're not what they should be. So, you know, we're shutting down programs. How could we be this rich and, and not have great public schools? You know, obviously there's people sleeping on the street in the cold. What a terrible way to live. Now, it's a really hard problem to solve, 
And if you start solving the problems of homelessness, maybe people, you know, migrate in to take advantage of a better place to, to suffer uh, relatively. So, you know, should we be spending less money as a city? Uh, you know, I, I think if we do, we're going to have uh, stolen bikes, and more people on the street. And, and that's a real trade off. You know, just thinking about going back to the because one thing that Andre was raising more uh, tax revenue and it actually being a detriment. Can you speak to unpack that when you were talking about the BC spec and vacancy tax? Yes, happy to do that. But before, um, let me let me address this one point. Uh, you sure. call that in case yeah. I forget okay. it. <laughs> um, and, and, and Tom is absolutely correct. Our public schools are not bad, but they can be a lot better and they should be a lot better. And, uh, and there are a lot of people in need and, and suffering in BC uh, who need help and helping them is great. Where we disagree is how to get there. So to me, uh, it is our high tax and high regulatory system that is causing this. The, this is chasing away businesses. You, we really aren't able to do, make anything in BC. We're cutting trees, shipping them to China to be sliced and then shipping them back here. Like these kind of things are absurd. So start there. I, I, I do want to help, but the way to help better is actually by reducing our income tax and our regulation. So if people actually choose to do things here rather than just provide the absolute minimum here and do as much uh, as possible elsewhere. And then the re resulting economic boom will provide enough revenue for, for better schools and to help the homeless. And uh, similarly, um, you know, on, on the income, on, the, on the, the problem with increasing property taxes is you say land is, cannot move, and you're right, land cannot move, but those people that are coming will not come. So land is very much movable because the value of the land is movable, not land itself. We understand we're not going to be moving the dirt, but the value moves because the value is created by the people on it. And, uh, and if we start to raise property taxes without a drastic reduction and reform of the income tax and our regulatory system, we're not going to get those people coming in. And, uh, and we want them because they're spending their money and, uh, and when they buy a home, they also renovate and hire people and, and um, are members of the community and so on and so, so forth. So, um, so it is not true to say we can raise income, uh, property taxes as much as we want without a resulting economic impact. The resulting economic impact, the way we're set up will actually be worse because already we've chased away anyone who can go away in terms of manufacturing or services uh, provision. So I see Tom has a point on that. Let's let's talk about this, and then we'll come back to sure. what you asked. Sure, no, well, absolutely. Well, well, maybe there's a segue, which is, yeah, I mean, th there's a fixed number of seats in British Columbia. So what do prices do? What are the crazily high prices and rents that everybody struggles with do? They allocate the seats. And, you know, allocating the seats means if you don't pay the price, you're out. So right now, who's out? Yeah, you know, I got my degree. I can earn a decent living in Vancouver, but boy, it's a lot cheaper in Calgary or Winnipeg or Toronto. Well, not cheaper in Toronto, but you know, it's a different place. Halifax, Montreal, what have you, right? So we scare people away. So you know, somebody's going to get scared away. Now, do we want to have that engineer? You know, so if there's a choice, should it be the uh, 25-year-old uh, trust fund hippie, or should it be the 25-year-old recent grad who wants to work for a living? 
right now, unfortunately, we sort of have to choose between both. Probably the person who leaves is neither. Probably the person who leaves is someone who makes, you know, a, a limited income with a, a more limited human capital. And they're, and, they're, and they're the ones who have to exit the province. Ideally, what I think Andre and I agree on is we want more people uh, to, to get to live here. And uh, one way might be a more efficient tax system. You know, I, I think that would make a more dynamic economy. I think there have to be ways to cut taxes to, to improve the employment picture. I don't know how much of a difference that would make. But I do know letting more people uh, live in homes in British Columbia would do it. And of course, 70, 80 percent of the land uh, are in greater Vancouver, single family only, which, you know, you're looking at a half million bucks or, uh, or else no, no home for you. So that's a real issue, the fixed number of seats. This is our choice through paperwork and red tape and regulation. We're limiting the seats on purpose. So when we're looking at our high rents and high prices, don't point the number at, uh, don't point the finger at foreigners or locals or people who are trust fund babies or none of that. I mean, all of those obviously have an impact, but the real cause is our policies are artificially limiting supply. Mm-hmm. And Tom points to single-family home uh, homes. I point to the agricultural land reserve. Whatever, you know, both of those are in play. And we're really artificially limiting the number of seats. And as Tom says, despite poor city services, the, the place is still nice, right? You, you, you know, it, it's a fantastic place to live. No question about that. People want to come. Limited seats, price goes up, no question there. But the solution is to increase the number of seats, not to let government allocate where the seats are. Because if we let the government say, oh, no, no, you're a trust fund baby, you're not going to be here. We're going to give it to another one who works. Well, yeah, but the one who works then is going to have less incentive to do so. They're going to have less incentive to go to school and they're going to have less incentive to work hard and save. Because they know eventually they'll be shifted to the bad guys and they'll have a target painted on their back. Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. 
We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. Yeah, if I can just extend the seat analogy a little bit, uh, you know, a, a lot of people look at a concert, uh, you know, and it's Ticketmaster or whatever the company is that, you know, right. oh, that's terrible. Look the at Taylor what they're Swift. doing. The Instead Swift. of the real Taylor Swift fans, the people who wind up going to see Taylor Swift are just the people who are willing to pay the most to to see Taylor Swift. Well, that that's kind of the way things are ultimately going to work uh, and, and, and probably should be. So the problem is, you know, the, the real problem we have is, not enough seats to see Taylor Swift. And so, you know, what's the analogy here? What's the ticket master everybody complains about? I don't think real estate trusts or particularly real estate investment trust REITs are particularly active uh, in greater Vancouver. Uh, but I just heard, you know, the very, very uh, good, usually Stephen Quinn show with a political panel where nobody wanted to stand up to the claim that the big problem we have to solve is real estate investment trusts buying apartments. here. That's, that's not the problem at all. We, I wish there were more apartments owned by real estate investment trusts. And the key is more apartments. So, you know, chasing away allocation, uh, you know, through the private sector, that's just not 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 a solution. So that's the segue to, to the question I think you had earlier on, on my um, statement that we raise all these taxes and, and not only they're not helping us there, you know, obviously I, I'm taking this to an extreme. I right. re- realize a lot of the taxes we collect are doing good. They're building roads and then paying for schools and, you know, uh, so so I'm not saying zero government at all. Sure. But our government is way too big and, and, and way too involved in every aspect of our life. And one typical example, the example I was referring to is the most recent announcement of a $500 million fund to buy existing rental properties. And in that announcement, um, Premier David Tibby uh, specifically referenced REITs real estate investment trusts are being as being the culprit. They're coming in and building, buying all these apartment buildings and they're re, um, redeveloping them. And in doing so, they're kicking out the tenants. So we need, we're going to buy these apartments before REITs can, and we're going to protect the tenants. So it sounds really good politically. I get that. But this is a typical example, a prime example of how taxpayers' funds are used to hurt us especially renters, um, not help. And the reason this announcement in particular hurts the renters is you're basically spending taxpayers' money to disrupt what uh, people who want to build and expand supply are trying to do. So you're spending taxpayers' money to restrict rental supply. It's, uh, so, so we will be better off if we take this $500 million and dump it in the ocean then run, uh, <laughs> run a fund that, yeah, we really will because, uh, because uh, we're just restrict, we're using it to sabotage people who want to build more. And then we're going to say, well, what about the people who are already in those buildings, right? That, that, that's the sure. intended group. The thing is, they're not better off either because by constricting supply, sure, we're helping them and we're allowing them to this falling apart to live in this building, even though it's falling apart, but 
the moment they have to move because they got a new job or they got a bigger family or a smaller family, whatever, life changes. The moment you have to move, all that help goes to zero. And now you're stuck finding, trying to find a place in a, in a market that has no supply. So even the people we are intending to protect, the very individuals that live in those buildings, even they're worse off because of that policy. So why not the solution is, in my view, allow building, remove the obstacles to building a lot more, and then competition will protect those people, right? If, if you have a bad landlord, you're going to move. And that's how things are, from what I understand, in Seattle. There's vacancy and, 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 and a choice. And, and a lot more purpose-built rental, right? A lot more purpose-built rental. In Seattle? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You have to because right. you can't build condos because of the lawsuits. Right. <laughs> well, whatever the reason is, I'll, the, 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 the solution is very clear. A lot more purpose-built rentals. Seattle had 18,000 units built in 2018, pre-pandemic, in one year. And then, uh, sure, there are bad landlords in Seattle, I'm sure. And there are abusive landlords in Seattle, I'm sure. You just move because the place down the street is not only uh, has availability, but they're offering you $2,000 Amazon gift card if you move to their place. So it's easy to move. That, yeah. yeah, well, I, I just, I, I, I think we should talk about that because that was one of the questions we had is, is, it seems in Vancouver, we have these demand shocks in the market. Um, and then we see a lot of project starts and we see supply coming online and then we see demand stop and then we typically see projects stall and we see these gaps of new inventory coming on from the development community. Um, at least that's what we've talked about on the program at, 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 at length in the past. And, and I guess that's the thing. So what role should government be in the creation of supply, if any? And how, how can we kind of get past these periods where we have these, these stops, these gaps in the market for creating supply? Well, we need to look at, um, and Tom, I'm, I'm taking over the waves here. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you a turn. But, um, but I have an immediate quick answer to this. And it is, the reason those projects stops is that it's so, so, so expensive to build in BC. And it is primarily due to government regulation and, and high taxes on development. We're taxing housing like cigarettes. Like it, we almost like want to discourage it. So because of that, the required rate of return on any development is through the roof. And, uh, and, and then the moment the market becomes a little shifty, you can't make ends meet because you still have to pay all these huge taxes and meet the ridiculous regulation that we have. So the solution there is cut back regulation, reduce the building code to only health, safety, and impact on neighbors, and then reduce taxes on housing development. We want to encourage housing. We don't want to discourage it. And then people will be able to build projects even when um, in a softer market because those projects will be viable. Now, we also have the issue of land prices. So some developer may have paid a huge amount for the land, and, and that's what prevents them from finishing the project. Well, that's fine. The solution there is to make sure every land that we actually have available is allowed um, and, and can be developed on. Um, and we're not doing that. We have a number of artificial restraints on land use. Tom says single family house, uh, houses and the zoning. 
I say uh, restrictions on land use like the agricultural land reserve, both are in, at play. Either way, the, the, the outcome is there's no land, so land is very expensive. Cigarettes, Tom. <laughs> Tax like cigarettes. Uh, yeah, well, you know, impact fees are a tricky one, and I think they can be done better or worse. And, you know, forbidding you uh, somebody from throwing out tenants. So, for example, the Broadway plan, the sort of right of return of tenants, it's an interesting one. I mean, I totally agree with Andre. Tenants are put in a terrible position because there's not enough rental housing. And so you're gripping, you know, with your last ounce of strength to stay in the place where you live. And whether that's rational or irrational, you know, for an individual property, obviously the incumbent tenant is worse off if that individual property is redeveloped. So it would be totally rational given an overall level of supply for the tenants of a rent-controlled building who've been there for 15 years to say, absolutely not, city, don't let this get redeveloped. Whether in the aggregate, the renters along Broadway should be in favor of more apartment construction on Broadway is an interesting question because there's pros and cons. The con is they lose their current place. The benefit is there's a better overall rental supply. I think giving renters another alternative, which is let's really, and I think Andre and I agree, let's really, let, let, let's have it, let's, let's really open up land to supply. Whether you need to lower fees or not, I'm not so sure. I, mean, I, don't, you know, I don't think the city wants every property redeveloped all at once uh, or the province. And so you, know, you ought to set redevelopment pricing so that you get as much redevelopment as you want. If we think the fees are getting in the way, if you look and you say, hey, you know, up zoning for sale and everybody says, ah, not at that price, I'm not going to develop, which will happen this year, 100 uh, percent, then maybe you look at the pricing and say we're overcharging. If, on the other hand, developers are tripping over themselves to get zoning permission and the bottlenecks are either at City Hall or the labor market, which I think is worth pointing out. There is a question of even if the government got completely out of the way, how much construction could happen all at once uh, based on private sector contractor shortages and skilled labor shortages? I don't know. But, but uh, yeah, so pricing could be too high. It could be chasing off development. I think the bigger culprit is just the inavailability of developable sites. And, you know, and again, part of that is mountains and oceans. And part of it, though, is, of course, uh, regulation. You know, I'm just thinking about the, and this is a going back, I guess, you know, we, we started talking about taxation, which I think is like a, you know, part of a part of the issue, but obviously not overarching broad issue. And I'm just thinking about the last, say, since 2016, you know, we had the foreign buyers tax, we had the BC spec tax, we have had the empty homes tax, we've had school tax. We've had all sorts of measures that are, are meant to constrict demand. And I'm just wondering, are we better off right now in, in either of your minds today than we were in, say, let's call it 2012, 2014? Is it worth the energy, I guess, to, because I know you guys agree on supply. Obviously, I think we all can agree on we need more supply, but yet we're talking about, you know, taxation. And I'm just wondering, is it, are we, are we better off now? And is it kind of worth the, the, you know, and we talk about it all the time too. Is it worth the breath, right? Curious to hear your thoughts. Gee, my breath is free, actually. <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> worth that, no question. <laughs> Neither are good, right? So clearly 2012 or any year or right now, neither are good. Now, is it better or is it worse? I think it's obviously worse. Some will probably think it's better. I don't know. But vacancy rates has remained at 1%. 
for rentals in Vancouver. So when it comes to what actually matters, we're not better, we're not worse, we're the same. We, we have not solved our problem. That $500 million announcement, there was a quote in there that said, we have our rental apartments today, the number of rental units today are comparable to the early 90s, but the population has increased 50%. And I don't know where that statistics came from, but it feels right. I think that's, that was, uh, you know, one good thing that, uh, that in that announcement, it highlighted the overarching problem that we have. So at least since the 90s, relative to the 90s, we're certainly not better off. But the issue is, our solutions are always more government involvement, more taxes, more regulation to the cost of homeowners or workers. And, and because of that, uh, that, that no one wants to, it, it's very difficult to build. And Tom is correct. There is an optimal fee for construction, uh, for development, because when you develop something, you impose costs on the neighbors, so you should compensate them. But we know where we are today. This fee is way, way, way too high because we're not getting enough development. And you might say, well, today is a soft market. Well, we weren't getting in de uh, enough development in 2018 or 2019 when it was a normal market, pre-pandemic, mm -hmm. right? Because we can look at the numbers and the numbers of units we built, especially rental housings, are dismal. We're averaging like 1,200 units a year yeah. uh, while Seattle built 18,000 in, in one year. One thing I would point out, and I completely agree we should be building more, is part of the issue is people don't build condos in the States. They build purpose-built rental. And we've built a lot of condo in Vancouver. I mean, we had a lot of construction the last 10 or so years. And some of that difference is uh, condo here versus rental there. And I don't know exactly why that's true. I think part of it is this litigation risk uh, that you face in the U.S. After five years, the warranty expires and any lawyer uh, has a strong incentive to get the condo association to sue the developer. And so anticipating that, the developer says, maybe I'll just do purpose-built rental because the tenants can't sue me in the same way. But whatever the cause is, but whatever the cause is, you're oh, talking I mean, about yeah. the cause. The cause doesn't matter. The fact is Seattle built a lot more and we have a normal rental market. Well, I don't, know that, I don't know that Seattle, a, I, I'd make two points. A, I don't know that Seattle has a percentage of its supply added more supply of, in apartments, greater Seattle than greater Vancouver. I'm not sure that's true. I am sure it's true on the purpose-built rental, but as for condo plus purpose-built rental divided by original population, I think Vancouver may have uh, kept up with Seattle. I don't know. The other thing is I'd, I would be leery of overselling how great it is for renters uh, in Seattle. I think temporarily it was, I think there was a point where you were mentioning those gift cards from Amazon. New York had the same issue. I think New York was sort of overbuilt. People worried about overbuilt on rental. But then COVID happened. There were disruptions. Uh, and for a while, New York was cheap to rent in. But then when, when back to work alarms started ringing, it turned into an absolute horror show. So, you know, one thing is, look, you know, uh, North America, particularly Canada, people want to move here. It's a fantastic place. The private sector can only do so much. So any policy intervention, you ask about empty homes, foreign buyer tax, I think every policy that's realistically on the table uh, is a question of, I like to say, and my son actually called me out on this. He said, Tom, that logically it's the same thing. But I think verbally they sound different, which is one is, can we make things better? I don't think we can make things better. I think we can make things less worse with good policy choices. So any policy that gets enacted from the right or from the left can't be judged on, oh my goodness, you know, you tried this, 
and things are more expensive today than they were five years ago. My personal view is that's just how it's going to be. Can I just ask you, because I, I think about um, market rental and and new condos coming to the market. When we talk about there's a, a limited number of seats, do we consider them both equal when we're having this conversation? Because I, I know home ownership seems to be at the forefront of a lot of young people's minds, right? Um, not There's a lot of people in Vancouver that don't want to be lifelong renters. But to me, it's second order. And I think people really need to get a grip on this, right? There's benefits to having condo, which is there's no security of tenure like owning a place, A. B, flexibility of tenure. A condo can be both owned and rented. On the other hand, purpose-built rental is just better. You know, uh, mom and pop artisanal landlord is not a professional. You know who is a professional? A real estate investment trust or a pension fund. They, they know how to manage property. They're going to make more efficient choices uh, than some condo owner who, like, you know, watched an episode of, you know, Pimp My House or whatever and makes a decision about the backsplash <laughs> coming soon to TLC. Uh, so any, anyway, what we need are more housing units. There's benefits to purpose-built rental. There's benefits to condos. You know, don't get, I think the city has gotten way too hung up putting its thumb on the scale of purpose-built rental. And, and it, like Andre says, you're spending a lot of money to basically push something in a direction that whether it's a benefit or a cost isn't obvious. Just, just get the units built. And if you, and, and if you want to help low-income people, I, you know, this is something we learn in econ, I don't know, maybe not one, but, you know, 1A or whatever. Give poor people money. You know, if, if they're not, dr you know, drug addict, it's a different story. Just handing out cash is a little tricky. But, you know, if you're a renter struggling to make a living here who's working a job and, you know, doing their best in a single parent, something like that, give them money. Don't, don't, don't meddle and say, no, 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 developer, don't build that condo. Absolutely not. Stop building. Stop, stop, you know, build a rental instead. Don't spend your money on that. Spend the money on, on handing out cash, be it through a tax cut or an entitlement or whatever. I love it. We, we absolutely agree. And we've had that discussion before. So, so mm -hmm. I know we're going to agree on that. Uh, helping people by meddling with the market is no help at all. Nine out of 10 times, this actually ends up hurting the very few people you're trying to help. So if there are people we think we need to help, and of course, we agree, I think Tom and I agree there are people like that. Most people agree on that. Make sure, it, as long as they're mentally competent, you give them cash. You don't meddle with them. You don't give them a place to live because then you're tying your help to a particular life situation. And the moment that life situation helps, changes nothing. And we want people to change their life situation. We actually want to encourage people to get a better job and get ahead in society and maybe move into a condo and buy and so on and so forth. Well, by locking them into a particular place or the help is gone, we're making that upward movement harder. So, so yeah, let's, uh, if, if we're going to be helping people, let's help them, but leave the decisions with them. This is a great idea. And Tom and I have advocated for that many times in the past. But in the meantime, this uh, another component there is we need sufficient housing. We need competition among landlords because the way it is in Vancouver, I have rented both from professional uh, REIT owners mm -hmm. in my life and from small landlords. And both were not great because the landlord knows I have no place to go. Yeah. Right. I, uh, just as an aside, it makes me think my wife's a teacher and some of her colleagues who rent will literally not call their landlord for any reason, right. basically yeah. because they're worried about 
losing their spot that they've been there for six years or whatever, and they and yeah. they're terrified of being evicted. And I know, of course, the Residential Tenancy Act exists, but that's the situation. You know, thirty-five-year-old teachers <laughs> who are, who yeah. are kind of doing God's work are in in the city, which is which is tragic. I, I mean, imagine it—a couple. You know, if you were both teachers, what a great thing to be! Like, yeah. nothing better. And Andre and I teach, but not that kind of teacher. Right. I mean, teaching kids. You know, young kids and uh, younger than college. <laughs> <laughs> what do you teach, though? <laughs> but, uh, it's the best. There's nothing better you can do. And 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 we just think a giant middle finger at, at, at a couple of married teachers in terms of the housing market. Yeah, it's crazy. It's uh, literally, it's like a constant thing that I, when I listen to, it's like, wow, you get the other side of it. It's like, oh yeah, you know, our, we haven't had hot water for three months. But if you're the landlord, you also have no incentive to do anything. Right, because exactly. where are the tenants gonna go? You're not gonna lose your tenants, and you can't really afford to do much of anything because, first of all, anything you want to do will require years of permitting and hassle with the city, and your property taxes have gone up, your input costs have gone up, your labor costs have gone up. Every all of, every cost you right. have has gone up tremendously. Rents have not, and and so then you even if you want to do it because it's the right thing to do, right? Not because you're worried tenants are live, it's the right thing to do. So you decide to do it anyway, you can't afford to do it. Right. So we've created a situation where both we are basically telling landlords don't do anything. And we're telling tenants stay put, don't complain. Uh don't do anything either. And we're we're dictating stagnation in our society. This is the opposite of what we want. We want dynamic society where competition protects land, uh, um, renters because they can move. And in fact, we want to encourage them to move, hopefully to a better place with a better job and a better family situation or whatever the, the circumstances are. We want people to move up. You, you know, it just strikes me, and just as a curious to hear both your thoughts on this, but, and I think we've kind of circled it, you know, if we were having this conversation Seven years ago, we'd be talking about foreign buyers. During COVID, I feel like we talked a lot about, you know, it's a it's local specula- it's speculators, local speculators. Now I feel like REITs are in the news. There's always a, there's, is this just politics? Can we ever move past kind of the, the insanity of finding the, the, the boogeyman to blame uh, du jour? Uh, like, do you have any hope? Because this is actually, it's a, it's a fairly depressing conversation as we have a lot of depressing conversations, but generally speaking, can we, is it just part of the political culture here? Are you optimistic? So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I want to reference one of my kids, but I'm not going to mention who, uh, cause <laughs> they're a great kid and, and they might listen to this and I don't want to, uh, I, I don't want to put them down, but what I've discovered I have three little kids, right? So what I've discovered is that they're incredibly creative when it comes to finding someone to blame for the mess they made. And uh, uh, just beyond anything I ever imagined I, I, or anything I could come up with. And, um, I, and I think our uh, politicians are the same way. Our politicians have done one thing right about housing, and that is create boogeyman, create culprits for our housing troubles. So we've pointed the finger at everyone, as you said, except ourselves and our policies. 
And until we remove the red tape regulation and, and high taxes associated with housing supply, we're not going to get enough supply and we're always going to have to keep finding new uh, culprits. But we're running out, right? So we, we've gone through all of those. Now we're recycling them, right? So read, it was read in 2018 uh, when there was the proposal for that $500 million fund came up. Now we see REITs again, right? So we're now starting to recycle them because we worked so hard, we've used them all up. So, uh, so no, none of so those efficient. are, I mean, obviously all those, <laughs> seriously, all of those things are at play, no question. Other than REITs, I, I don't see what the problem with REITs is, but, um, but the real culprit is we're restricting supply, we're taxing housing as if we want to discourage it. And as a result, we create a nightmare market but we don't roll back regulation and red tape and taxes. Instead, we try to solve the problem with doing more of it. And we've done that since, what was it, 2012, you mentioned? But yeah, pretty much. So I'm going to do uh, two anecdotes, if I may, and then a serious answer. And I'll try to remember to get back to Andre. So anecdote number one, I had a Nobel Prize when I was lucky enough to work with Peter Diamond uh, as a uh, grad student. And I, I feel like all the stupidest things I've ever said were said in his office. And once we were talking about, you know, studying housing markets, and it wasn't really his area. He, he did some foundational work that's important for housing uh, on search and matching. Uh, but, but he was talking about, you know, something about whether you could short housing maybe was the discussion. And he said, well, there's rights. And I was like, what do you mean trading rights to housing? And he meant real estate investment trusts. And he must have thought I was an idiot for how is this guy think he's a student in real estate and he doesn't know what a read is, but he didn't know how to say, to say it properly. So, and of course, I couldn't say, you know, you idiot, it's read. Yeah. Okay, so that's one. Two, I'm going to do another story in terms of your question about will there always be a villain? And uh, there will always be a villain. And, you know, my, my, my sons, Yabi and Yobi, two great sons, I will name them. When they were very young, I, I remember I liked to ask them, okay, here's the scenario. Suppose you can have one scoop of ice cream and your brother has a scoop of ice cream. That's scenario A. Do you like that better? Or would you rather have scenario B in which you have two scoops of ice cream, but your brother has three scoops of ice cream? And you can imagine what the answer was. One and one is much better than two and three, because why does he get three? <laughs> so, you know, we absolutely uh, will find somebody to, to blame for our problems. And, 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 and unfairness, people don't like uh, horizontal inequality. Like we're sort of the same person, and yet that guy has more than I do. I think it's instinctive. No way around it. Now, where I'm worried is who's going to be the next villain. And it is very hard for me to believe that the next villain isn't going to be uh, immigration. And I love course, immigration. Right. I'm an immigrant. Uh, I believe Andre's an immigrant. You guys are regional immigrants. So everybody in this room, you know, and, uh, you know, we're all children of immigrants because, you know, unless you're First Nations, and even the First Nations came from somewhere. So, you know, uh, immigration's a great thing. The idea that, you know, somebody who's like grows up in a horrendous situation in a corrupt country with poverty where there's not enough investment in their human capital, they shouldn't be able to come to Canada and be a success. It's terrible. I have no, you know, no patience for that argument, but it's going to be popular because it is a part of a, there's no way immigration's a net benefit for everybody. I mean, you know, it makes, makes real estate more expensive. If you have finite real estate, rents go up. How are we possibly going to have people who can't live, just can't live where they want to live and not get irritated in immigration? I don't see that any way that doesn't become a, a political, uh, you know, whatever. And I think that's unfortunate. 
I don't think people should have that attitude, but I don't see how people are going to avoid having that attitude. So I think if, if you want to pick a reason why we have to try our best to fix housing, that, the, the vilification of immigrants is probably the number one concern I have. You know, REITs, you know, they, <laughs> not, REITs aren't people. You know, if, if people want to hate, hate REITs and think incorrectly that REITs are the reason why housing is unaffordable, whatever, but immigration I worry more right. about. But it is problematic when David Eby is kind of fueling that fire, don't you think? It, I don't know if his policies are actually, well, I guess we've talked about it. But, uh, well, just to be sure, you mean the, the REIT fire, not the immigration fire? Yes. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah 100%. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. But uh, so there's another thing Tom and I agree uh, with, uh, and, 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 and obviously I'm an immigrant, everyone's an immigrant. Uh, so so uh, and immigration is an engine of growth, right? There's no question about it. The issue we have is we, we, we're trying to, to stagnate our society, prevent people from moving, prevent people from finding homes, from building homes. And then anyone, uh, it, then it's easy to find villains. So if we remove obstacles to sufficient supply and uh, primarily red tape regulation and high taxes, if we do those things, remove those three things, there will be enough supply. And then, so people tell me, oh, well, we can't hold um, everyone from China and, and everyone from Bulgaria. I come from Bulgaria since we're speaking about immigration, right? Sure we can. Canada has the most, the second most land of any country in the world. So absolutely we can. Our housing troubles are entirely of our own making. There's no objective reason why Canadians cannot afford homes in Canada. And there's really no reason in my view that immigrants cannot afford homes in Canada either. So the fundamentals are here. All we need to do is remove regulation, red tape, and, and high taxes to allow sufficient supply in the market. I, I you know, largely agree. You know, uh, the, the, a couple points I'd make, though, is one is the fees, you know, got to be careful. I think some fees are, are pretty healthy. They just raise revenue. And if you're, already, if you're already rationing development, you might as well charge for it up until the point where the fees are what's chasing you away rather than the regulations. But another point I'd make, unfortunately, is, yeah, there's tons of room in Canada but, you know, immigrants don't want to move to that part of Canada. They want to move to the part where there's not. <laughs> and uh, I, I do think there's, there's, you know, natural and private sector uh, limits you'd run into. You know, as a final thought, it, I'm just thinking about where we've been building. And it is worth pointing out, like the city of Vancouver seems, you know, back in 2014, 2015, I feel like we used to sell the odd presale in Vancouver and, you know, we, you don't hear about any new construction. I mean, I guess it can be corridor, some townhomes in that neighborhood, a couple duplexes in Vancouver, but you know, most of it's in Burquitlam, uh, Burnaby, Coquitlam. It does seem like there are other areas, even in Metro Vancouver that are doing it better than specifically the city of Vancouver, you know, like, and I was thinking about it in terms of reconstruction because we basically work in the city of Vancouver there's nothing to sell like there's not there's nothing like really when you think of new projects it acts on the park right right <laughs> those are the final units so and they yeah. launched probably four or five years yeah ago. they were held back is Oak Ridge sold out no no and that's you know what and that's kind of an area where uh I feel like weirdly we don't really operate all that much but uh but no those prices are high <laughs> 
So let's remember that the new mayor, Ken Sim, uh, promised in his campaign very clearly. He had this formula, 3331. And, and I think it referred to three days uh, approval for uh, a renovation, a home renovation, three weeks for a single family home that conforms to, to zoning, three weeks for something else, and then one year for like a multifamily project, something like that. Let's hope this actually happens. And the fact that there's not enough staff at City Hall to do that, or there's not enough money, that's not an argument because this is a profit center for the city. They can charge for that. So, so let's hope this happens and, and uh, let's hold our uh, new mayor, uh, who I'm very optimistic about, let's, let's hold him to this kind of promise because that's a first step in getting uh, sufficient supply. Hey, same with red light enforcement. You know, I mean, you could hire a cop to pay for himself easy to stand at uh, Arbutus and the, well, they, they, the bike lane there. But, you know, there's a cop. How many red lights are there that you could enforce and pay for the cop? I don't know why they don't do it. Similarly, yeah, staff to process permits. Part of it's the fee. I mean, there, there's a fee that's too low, right? I mean, I think you can talk about, I don't, a lot of these fees are 250 bucks and you're waiting four or five well, months for it. I'd rather pay a thousand bucks and get today's 100%. service. That, that was, I just went through it and it was remarkably cheap. And it took remarkably long. That was the the two takeaways to get a permit passed in Vancouver. So if we have a fee for service, no problem with that. You're paying something to get something done, and the city is part of that. No problem, right? Where I'm, what the, the fees and taxes I object to, are things that are collected and put into an, a, a general pot that, in my view, then best case scenario gets wasted. Worst case scenario is used to actually make people worse off. Lexus Lane, that's what we need. You pay 50 grand, you get your permit in a week. That, and the only thing there though is, does that uh, lead to certain developers and certain builders just taking over the market, right? Like it, No, it, but you mean though, Lexus Lane, so if you want it quicker, you can pay to have it quicker. Yeah. You don't mean privileged oh, okay. over. Okay, I was thinking. That was one of the, the, the things that's been implemented too, like certain preferred builders will get a... Oh, uh, that's no, what I was thinking of. Lane, which, which I think is, is really bad for, especially small businesses You know what, and actually in, my, pro, I, this project that uh, we haven't talked about on the show, but one of the, th- comments that has been made is oh we don't know the guy's doing it uh and it was the implication or the yeah. uh, my assumption was oh i maybe should have <laughs> you know maybe i i these guys come highly recommended but the the inspector at the city doesn't know them maybe i made the wrong choice which is Bro. yeah, yeah. which is how it works from. right i mean now that's i mean i think we've kind of made a bit of a cartel type situation in in who's working in the city because of a lot of reasons around zoning and and not only or on on wait times basically at the city right you want someone who knows people at the city uh we've i i don't know we're yeah we we are we are we've kept you guys long yeah long i know enough, i feel but, like tom um, had somewhere to go um <laughs> didn't you no no i think right now i can do this all day yeah um <laughs> <laughs> the, the the only other thing, uh, if you guys have time, just just maybe thoughts on on what this year, what the headline of twenty twenty three will be for the market, and then maybe kind of how this this plays out in the next uh, two or three years for pricing, for pricing specifically. I think it's going to be interest rates. So actually, this is going to be one instance where it's not uh, taxes and regulation and red tape. It's it's going to be interest rates. They have moved up the fastest ever 
to, to uh, I mean, they're not unprecedented level now, but the move up has been tremendous. Like we've never seen anything so fast, done so fast. And the, the problem with it is it takes six to nine months for the interest rate increase to filter through the economy. So we're just starting to see the effects of the initial interest rate increases. We have no idea what the subsequent increases that we experience will do to the economy. Um, so in my view, um, sure, the initial jump was needed, but uh, because we had inflation, but, uh, but I think we've gone too far. Um, and uh, let's hope we were able to bring interest rates down before we enter a severe recession, because the worst situation then would be inflation and unemployment, which is what, of course, everyone uh, fears. So let's, let's hope we, interest rate, we keep the interest rates, we bring them back down to maybe not to where they were, but a little lower to prevent that scenario of inflation and unemployment at the same time. So the, the headline reads, Bank of Canada gone too far. <laughs> Bank of Canada overshoots. Yeah I, think, <laughs> yeah, I think it has gone too far, and I think they're realizing it. The, the recent announcements have been to slow down. Now, to be fair, there is an issue in the U.S., right? So Bank of Canada cannot fall too, too far behind the U.S. because that's automatic uh, inflation, right? If, if the Canadian dollar falls, that's one for one automatic inflation. So, so we can't fall too far behind from the U.S. And the U.S. economy is doing better than Canadian economy at the moment. So we do have that uh, bit of an issue. But even then, I'm hopeful that the Fed will also hold or even start reducing uh, soon, because I also think they've gone too far. Uh, just on the simple premise that it takes a long time for these things to filter to the economy. And we're just starting to see the effects of the initial interest rate increases. We have no idea what the later ones are going to do. Yeah, I agree with Andre. Interest rates are really important. And I think it's sort of like uh, riding a mechanical bull or something like that in the sense that uh, we haven't seen, we have seen prices come down, but we're not at fundamental prices if interest rates are five and a half forever, right? Uh, people cannot afford homes at these prices uh, given these rates and prices have to come down if these rates persist. I think a lot of people think they won't persist, and so prices are, you know, sort of stagnating. Sellers won't accept these prices, uh, prices based on today's interest rates, but buyers can't really pay more, so we're at stalemate. But stalemate can't last forever, and so the question is how many months of bought people getting their interest rates renewed, how many pre-sale condo buyers not being able to close uh, come up before prices have to start correcting, or... We've got green shoots on inflation. We've had negative inflation readings. I think wholesale prices, they had good news today. We had consumer prices, uh, some, some good inflation signal. So maybe, maybe the uh, central banks uh, get to start dialing even in the opposite direction rather than raising sooner rather than later. But I don't fault them at all for what they've done. I don't fault governments for spending too much money and causing inflation during COVID because we had to keep people employed and you know able to pay rent. And at the same time, you know, central banks cannot be wimpy about inflation, you know, because we just, you know, entrenched inflation is a lousy thing. And we seem to have had it under control for 30 years. And that's a really good thing. So, you know. Do you think there's a chance we're back in a demand shock scenario in 2024? Where we were just too many people searching for homes, prices yeah. explode? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, once the lid comes off with interest rates coming back anywhere near where they were 3% or something like that, then I think we get into a pretty usual explosive Vancouver market. Well, we'll leave it there. How can people find out more about what you guys are up to? Best way to, to learn more. 
Oh, I think we're both on Twitter. Easy to find. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Elon Musk kicked me off. Blogs.ubc.ca David off. Or, or write me a letter by hand or something like that. Coffee. How about coffee? Meet me for coffee. <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming down. It was uh, uh, thought-provoking, to say the least. Excellent. Thank you for having us. Thank you both. And thank you, Andre. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Professor Tom Davidoff and Professor Andre Pavlov, the great debate, the tete-a-tete. There's only, there's no losers today, though. No. There's only, there's only winners. And it's us. Yeah. And the listeners, I think. Yeah. 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 Actually, Tom and, and uh, Andre, they had to come down to the studio. They had to spend some time. We they kinda, might both we be We kind of took their morning. <laughs> they might uh, both be losers. I think in hindsight, they're probably wondering if we should have did this over the phone, but... Uh, <laughs> We appreciate having them in studio, and man, it's always good to have those guys on the program. Oh, yeah. That uh, was great. I will think back fondly throughout my life about shows with those two, because I feel like I always take so much away from them, and great minds, and definitely influencing the direction the province has taken. Absolutely, yeah. They're two of the two of the, the, the most important voices when it comes to BC housing when it comes to the BC economy more generally. There's no ivory tower here. No, that's that's right. But uh, Adam, before we go, what else do we got? First off, we have a new website. Yes. This is actually, we actually teased it on Instagram. We did, we did. Uh, this website, it's been, it's been around for about a week. I will say I'm super excited about it, in part because it's a site you want to spend some time with. You yes. want to get to know this site. It's the write-ups are better <laughs> in the biblical sense. Uh, the write-ups, the write-ups are more. They're they're what juicy is not the right word. No, but they're, this is it's it's a it's a pretty good site. This is a it's a site. It's but it's really useful for searching. Yeah. Uh, you know, all real estate topics. You yeah. can you can find the episode. In the write-up, it's, you know, you can go listen, you can read. It's just fantastic. You want to spend time on the site. That yeah. is, that's the one thing. I think what has changed with the site is that now it reads almost like a, a really great, rich article that you can kind of, there's links to click, there's places to go, there's there's uh, stats, there's really great pull quotes. Uh, there's a ton right. of stuff. Right, like it's yeah. just, it, it is It is an experience uh, outside of the podcast that you can have on this site. Um, it's also easier to search. Like if you want to go to our site and you just want to listen to the shows on investing, you can now organize all the episodes that we have on specifically yeah. on investing. You just want to focus on the commercial podcast, whatever. Or developers, it's, uh, guests, or whatever you want to listen to. But it's all easy. It's all there at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That's right. VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. I'll follow up with this yeah. when you're there. There's also the weekly mailer, the live wire. This We have pre-sale, VIP right. pre-sale access. Deal of the month, stats before anyone else, different types of stats. There's no reason why you shouldn't be on the on the live wire. Sure. Some really good incentives with pre-sales right now. Yeah. And, you know, who knows where we're headed here. The January stats came out. They were abysmal. There was 20 offers on a house in Burnaby last night. Yeah. It's like... There was 150 through at another house uh, that I was it, through on the weekend. Such, you know, it's, it's a wild, it's wild It's a wild time. moment, but... Uh, Tough to call. It's an interesting moment to look at some of those incentives in the pre-sale market for sure. We also have, of course, private client services. Yeah, Matt, because if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information for free. It's available at your fingertips at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com slash PCS. Sign up for your own free account today. 
it is like the greatest time to have PCS. And I've had it for almost a decade monitoring various markets. And now it just, it's like, you can see what's going on, what's sitting, the price changes, everything's right there in your portal. There's no reason not to have it set up. No. So there's the live wire, there's PCS, there's just an abundance of information. How Vancouver, do you get a shirt though? VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That's on Instagram. You got to so go to Instagram. You got to go to Instagram for the shirts. And we're at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast on there. Is that yes, right? Yes. At, at the, Vancouver yeah, Real Estate like Podcast. Not like six days on the, on, in Vancouver. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. just at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And, and it's on Instagram. And there's a lot of information being produced there as well. If you want to talk about that or anything else, give me a shout at any time, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We, of course, also have that Kokomo line, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Well, have a great week, guys. And we are back next week with another great show. Thanks to so many people that reached out about not only what's going on on Instagram, but also on the new site. Uh, right. We appreciate the VRAP community recognizing the hard work that's going on into, the, into this. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode, please share it with a friend. Absolutely. Have a good week. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Mm-hmm.